In the events that follow, there are several discrepancies in dates and years between the official government indictments and the stories told by Robert Platchhorn and the other figures involved. When a date is uncertain, we've gone with the date provided by Platchhorn himself. Summer in Columbia, 1977. Bobby Platchhorn watched impatiently as the indigenous laborers loaded the last few bales of marijuana into the body of the old DC-3 cargo plane. The Colombian heat hung around him like a damp cloak without the slightest hint of a breeze. Another damn mosquito. He'd be eaten alive before this trip is through. Bobby knew they had to finish loading the grass and get off the ground soon. And not just because of the police. The army and roving groups of political rebels were very active in the area. Finally, the fuel truck finished filling the plane's tanks and pulled away into the trees. Thank God, time to get out of here. Bobby turned to order everyone onto the plane when several voices called out, Tranquilo, hombres. Everyone around him raised their hands into the air instantaneously. Bobby looked around at all the laborers, bewildered. He had no idea what was going on or who had called out. Then he saw them, Colombian soldiers carrying old M1 carbines stepping out of the trees along either side of the airstrip. He grimaced. This is not good. Not good at all. I'm Howell Hargett. And I'm Kate Leonard. And this is Kingpins, a ParCast original. Every Friday, we journey inside the ranks of organized crime rings, from street gangs to mafiosos, to understand how a kingpin or queenpin rises to the top of the underworld. And why they fall. As we follow the lives of infamous crime bosses, we'll explore how money and power change them, and how it changed the community around them. This is our first episode on Robert Platshorn, who for a time in the mid-1970s was one of the nation's biggest marijuana smugglers. Working out of South Florida, his Black Tuna gang reputedly imported a million pounds of marijuana into the U.S. in just a year and a half. This week, we'll explore his rise from working as a pitchman in Atlantic City to running a multi-million dollar pot smuggling network out of a fancy Miami Beach hotel. And next week, we'll look at how a joint FBI and DEA investigation finally reeled in Platshorn and his Black Tuna gang, making them the first major catch in the war on drugs. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. We also now have merchandise. Head to ParCast.com slash merch for more information. By late 1977, Robert Platshorn and his childhood friend, Robert Meinster, had been working as middlemen in the marijuana business for several years. Known as Bobby and Robbie, respectively, to their associates, the two Roberts would buy loads of marijuana from local dealers and sell it to their customers, laundering their drug money through a car dealership called the South Florida Auto Auction. 
It was a good system, and they made a decent profit. But they knew that if they wanted to make the good money, the really big money, they needed to start importing the goods themselves directly from the source. With that in mind, in late 1977, they began planning a trip to Colombia. Robbie would stay back in Miami to oversee the car business, and Bobby would fly to Colombia with their new business partner, Gene Myers. Known as Big Gene, Myers was a pilot and had started out as one of Bobby's small-time customers. Wanting to join the syndicate to help grow it even larger, he was now working with his former suppliers full-time. The three wannabe smugglers had ambition, but not much else. As newcomers to Colombia, they had absolutely no reputation to go by. They also didn't have enough money to pay for a load of marijuana up front. They hoped to find a supplier to sell it to them on credit, and they figured their best chance of success was to look the part of trustworthy, established smugglers. Borrowing money from some of their stateside customers, they used $25,000 to rent a private jet and book swank accommodations in Colombia. The jet was a Lear 24, sleek and sharp with two powerful engines above the wings. The bikers were ostensibly there for protection, but in reality, they were part of the act. If Bobby and Big Gene wanted to play the game of powerful, well-connected smugglers, they needed to look the part. Arriving in Barranquilla on the northern coast of Colombia, Bobby was shocked to discover that Big Gene and the bikers didn't have passports. He hadn't even thought to ask before they left. Bobby was scared out of his mind when he stepped off the plane, but his experience in sales taught him how to always look cool and collected, even when you're in way over your head. He had been to Colombia before, so he knew how to solve the problem. Bobby walked into the customs office and carefully peeled off five $100 bills from a wad he pulled out of his well-pressed linen pants. Bobby carefully explained that his friends were simply accompanying him on a business meeting in town and would be leaving later in the day. The customs official looked him up and down a few times, then the cash disappeared. He went back to the Learjet and gathered Gene and the bikers. He was glad to see that the plane was drawing all the attention he'd hoped for. Bobby confidently led his group past a line of police officers and customs officials as though he didn't have a care in the world. They made their way to an upscale hotel in downtown Barranquilla and rented the presidential suite. When Bobby's contact, a Colombian named Johnny, showed up, they got down to business. Bobby explained that they had a plane in Miami ready to take 2,000 pounds of high-grade marijuana at the earliest possible time. They needed it on credit, and they needed it fast. Then Bobby offered to put himself up as collateral. If Johnny could deliver the marijuana he promised, Bobby would remain in Colombia as a hostage until the load was paid for. Johnny was thoroughly impressed by Bobby's charm and confidence. He told Bobby that everyone was talking about his Learjet and bodyguards with no passports. Most importantly, Johnny's contacts were eager to meet the brash gringo. Johnny arranged a meeting later in the day with a man named Chino, 
who promised 2,000 pounds of good quality herb by the end of the week. Bobby would remain with Chino until the load was paid for. If everything went as planned, Bobby and Robbie would officially be in the smuggling business. From that day forward, Big Gene and the bikers called Bobby the Baron of Barranquilla for the way he smoothly handled the situation from start to finish. The entire journey would not have been a success without Bobby's cool-headed handling of the situation. In only a year, Bobby, Robbie, and Gene would be running a multi-million dollar smuggling network out of Florida's luxurious Fontainebleau Hotel. And all thanks to the sort of confidence under pressure that Bobby Platchorn had shown from his youngest days. Bobby was born to a middle-class Jewish family in South Philadelphia in the early 1940s. Growing up in that era, he learned from a young age that if he wanted to make it in the world, he had to find his own way. He stated, We were taught that if Jews wanted a piece of the American dream, they had to create, build, and own it for themselves. South Street, where Bobby lived, was a bustling thoroughfare through the heart of urban Philadelphia. A street lined with shops and stores, office buildings, delis, and restaurants. In the 1940s and 50s, the area was a sprawling Italian sector of the city. But Bobby and Robbie grew up in a small Jewish area within that larger neighborhood. Bobby's mother ran a clothing store for girls on South Street, and the family lived above the shop. His father worked at a nearby shoe store. His best friend and future smuggling partner, Robbie Meinster, also lived on the street, residing above his own family's shop. As children, Bobby, Robbie, and their friends roamed South Street, calling themselves the South Street Gang. They would climb across rooftops, break in and explore old abandoned buildings, and share a cigarette when the adults weren't watching. Their attempts at sneaking into movie theaters and stealing candy from Woolworths were typically met with failure and long periods of being grounded. Their real fun came with cap guns and water pistols. They'd ride their bikes down the crowded sidewalk shooting at unsuspecting shoppers. They particularly enjoyed tormenting the barkers who stood in front of stores trying to sell to the many passers-by. They were fiercely independent and enterprising children who learned to stand on their own two feet from a young age. At a time when parents worked 12-hour days, seven days a week to make ends meet, Bobby learned early that if he wanted any spending money, he'd have to earn it himself. He would perform chores for his mother's store or offer his services to other shopkeepers on the street. Bobby and his friends learned the value of hard work by sweeping floors, making boxes, collecting and recycling old bottles and shining shoes. By the time Bobby graduated from high school in the spring of 1960, his parents had moved to Atlantic City and were operating a hotel there. That summer, they rented rooms to a group of pitchmen, or independent salesmen, who were selling goods on the Atlantic City boardwalk. With few job prospects of his own, Bobby began to learn the trade. For a 17-year-old boy, Bobby displayed an immense talent for salesmanship. His natural charisma was a perfect fit for this sort of job. Within a few months, he was touring the region selling products and gadgets at fairs and home shows. 
He eventually worked booze at two World's Fairs in 1962 and 1964 and was featured on a number of TV commercials. Vitamix blenders were one of his specialties and he rose to become one of the highest earning pitchmen in the country. Though he continued to work as a pitchman off and on for the next 15 years, he also invested in several business ventures, including an ice cream parlor, which he opened in 1973. Called the Ice Cream Factory, it sat on South Street, right across from his mother's old store and the family's old apartment. It doubled as an ice cream parlor and video arcade. He soon began selling his ice cream on street corners as well, using push carts stocked with Breyer's ice cream. It proved so successful that he eventually rose to become the second largest Breyer's distributor in the country. In the end, it was through that ice cream shop that Bobby ultimately made his way into the world of marijuana smuggling. And it was brought to fruition when a fellow pitchman came to Bobby and made him a pitch he couldn't refuse. Coming up, we'll see how one of Bobby Platchorn's colleagues got him involved in the marijuana business. Now, back to the story. Bobby Platchorn had found success as a pitchman in the 1960s and 70s, working fairs and shows throughout the eastern half of the United States. Though he moved to Florida in 1974, he still owned his ice cream company in Philadelphia. It would come to play an important role in his entrance into the world of drug smuggling. In the summer of 1976, Bobby was working his usual booth at the Wisconsin State Fair, pitching blenders and nonstick cookware. While there, his colleague, Luke McLeod, approached him with an offer. He needed space to store some inventory for one of his businesses. Since Bobby closed his ice cream parlor in the winter, Luke suggested subletting the warehouse during the winter months to store his own inventory. After they hammered out a deal, Luke made another suggestion. Since he was going to be using Bobby's warehouse in the winter, perhaps they could work together on moving some marijuana. One of Luke's side businesses involved using his trucks in the off-season to run marijuana for a Florida smuggler. To McLeod, the young and successful Bobby seemed like just the person to help him with this. He asked if Bobby happened to know anyone interested in selling the pot that Luke could provide. As a matter of fact, he did. His old buddy Robbie from South Street had just recently told him of a friend who was in the marijuana wholesaling business. Now Bobby had a supply source for Robbie's friend, and he and Robbie could take a commission on the sales. Just like that, Bobby and Robbie were officially in the game. They began drawing commissions on small loads brought from Florida into Pennsylvania and New Jersey. They used Bobby's ice cream warehouse to store bales of marijuana when necessary and struck up several partnerships with local dealers who would buy what they had to offer. Though they understood what they were doing was against the law, they had good reason to believe marijuana would soon be legalized. In 1971, Richard Nixon had established a commission to study the question of marijuana's legalization. The following year, the commission unanimously recommended that possession and distribution of marijuana for personal use should be decriminalized. Though the conservative Nixon ignored the commission's recommendations, a number of states followed their advice 
and began to remove criminal penalties for marijuana possession. By 1977, 11 states had passed such laws. Public opinion polls showed that the majority of Americans supported this. When Jimmy Carter had taken the oath of office in January, he'd run on a platform that had included the decriminalization of marijuana possession. Bobby and his partners had every reason to believe that they were getting in on the ground floor of what was sure to become a booming legal trade. In the 1970s, drug smuggling wasn't associated with the violence and murder that would characterize it a decade later. In 1977, nobody had ever heard of Miami Vice. Bobby and Robbie were just a couple of stoners looking to make easy money in a business that they fully expected to eventually be legal. As Bobby's business grew more lucrative, he and Robbie transferred their operation down to Florida, where they could have more direct involvement in the process. It enabled them to find more consistent sources for the customer base they had begun to build. In Miami, they were also in a better position to transition into the smuggling business itself. After Bobby successfully got his partner Big Gene and his biker bodyguards in and out of Colombia without passports, he remained in the country for another week as a hostage of his newfound suppliers. He'd be free to go home only after the load was successfully paid for by Robbie, who was working at the office in Miami. Bobby found that life as a hostage on the Colombian coast of the Caribbean Sea wasn't so bad. When he wasn't being wined and dined at posh local restaurants or sitting poolside with a fruity drink, his suppliers would take him out for a day of fishing and water skiing. In the end, his supplier was only able to come up with 1,200 pounds of marijuana instead of the 2,000 he'd promised explaining it was the best he could do on such short notice. As far as Bobby was concerned, anything was better than nothing. The load was picked up on Saturday as planned and flown without a hitch to Miami. Then it was a waiting game for Robbie to send the payment. It took a day and a half, but by Monday morning, Robbie's payment had hit the bank. Within hours, Bobby was on a plane back to Miami where he was given a hero's welcome. But the joy and elation of completing their first successful smuggling run overshadowed a bigger problem. After all their expenses were accounted for, they were in the hole by about $50,000. They were quickly learning the hard reality of Colombian drug smuggling. First, the load brought in by Bobby's suppliers had sat on the little jungle airfield for several hours, awaiting the arrival of Bobby's chartered plane. During the interval, the local police had arrived and had taken their customary cut, which amounted to 350 pounds. That left only 850 pounds of marijuana for Robbie to sell once it arrived in Miami, far less than the 2,000 they'd originally been hoping for. In addition to the expenses of the plane, pilots, and unloading crews, three of their customers had gathered their resources together and loaned them $150,000 to get them started. Between these expenses, the loss of the police confiscation, and the relatively high price per pound they'd had to pay to the Colombians, they couldn't completely pay off their customers' loan. 
Fortunately for Bobby and his colleagues, this was an era when drug smuggling was largely a family business. His partners and customers were his friends, his neighbors, and his stoner buddies. They knew they could trust him. Platshorn would later state, It was the hippie era. You tell a guy you'll pay him a million dollars, you pay him. They knew that to finish paying off the money they owed, they'd have to make another smuggling run, and soon. Within two weeks, they'd arranged for another plane and Bobby was on his way back to Barranquilla to purchase 5,000 pounds of high-end Santa Marta gold. This time, Bobby was able to enter the scene in Colombia as an established Miami connection. All the suppliers in the area were eager to deal with him. He decided to stick with the same men he'd already done business with and was able to get a much better price on a larger load of premium marijuana. At that time, Cuban marijuana smugglers were flooding the market with low-quality product, packed poorly and with stems and seeds still in place. This was run-of-the-mill ditchweed. Bobby and Robbie preferred instead to deal with the good stuff, the high-quality herb that cost more but was also more profitable. Bobby had agreed to $60 per pound for the previous load. Now, with more bargaining power on his side, he was able to negotiate a 5,000-pound load for $35 a pound. They'd sell it in Miami for $280 per pound, significantly more than the $180 that the lower-quality product cost. Once again, Bobby agreed to remain in Colombia as a pampered hostage until the payment came through. When the load was ready, it was sailed up the Magdalena River and loaded onto trucks. These trucks in turn delivered the load out to the hidden jungle airfield that doubled as a cow pasture. By this time, Bobby's magnetic pitchman personality had won over his new Colombian friends. Their relationship had grown warm and trusting, like the family business back home. It was a good thing, because when Bobby ran short of cash to get his pilots down to Colombia, his supplier Chino came through for him. Chino took him to his family home, and Chino's father loaned Bobby the $5,000 he needed to get his pilots out of Aruba, where they'd been stationed awaiting instructions. They landed on the little jungle airfield, and a crew of hired locals got to work quickly. Bobby and his suppliers had already learned their lesson about what would happen if they hung around too long and the police showed up. The local men worked efficiently, and the job was completed in 15 minutes. And that's when the army showed up. At the sound of Tranquilo Hombres, everyone put their hands into the air. The soldiers began to disarm the Colombians, while the lieutenant went through the plane and casually took everything of value he could find in their luggage. He eventually began interrogating Bobby and the pilots. He assumed Bobby was the boss, but Bobby denied it, figuring the man was looking for a valuable hostage. The lieutenant began arguing in Spanish with the Colombians, discussing a financial arrangement. It eventually became apparent that he was demanding the outrageous sum of $2 million, which Bobby couldn't even dream of paying. Not only was it a ridiculously high demand, 
but Bobby's suppliers had already paid a large bribe to use the airfield. That bribe was supposed to have gone to pay off rogues like this one. Within a few minutes, Bobby's Colombian comrades had gotten in their small plane and flown off, leaving Bobby, the pilots, and the work crew there to wait it out in the sweltering Colombian heat. The lieutenant, apparently enjoying his position of power, demanded that since Bobby was claiming to be a mere laborer, he should begin unloading the plane by himself. He went to work moving bales while the lieutenant and his entourage waited for the Colombians to return with the bribe money. After waiting for more than an hour in the oven-like conditions of late summer in Colombia, the lieutenant finally decided he'd had enough. Bobby had long since quit unloading bales of marijuana, and instead he and several of the soldiers were busy smoking joints. Bobby had even passed out business cards for the auto auction, promising to sell them all cars if they ever came to Miami. But his bravado was all for show. Inside, he was wondering if he'd ever get home alive. If the lieutenant had his way, it wasn't likely. Rousing the men from their lethargy, the lieutenant herded Bobby, the pilots, and the laborers at gunpoint down a trail away from the landing strip. They reached a large van, and the lieutenant informed Bobby and the others that he intended to take them to the nearby village of Sienega and execute them. Their deaths would serve as warning to future smugglers who couldn't pay the necessary fees. When the van refused to start in the humid subtropical air, the lieutenant instructed Bobby and the others to push the van down the trail to get it started. Hoping to stall for time and refusing to abet his own pending murder, Bobby flopped down on the grass and encouraged the others to do the same. He flatly refused to push the van. Since he'd already spent over an hour smoking weed and schmoozing with the soldiers, they weren't eager to enforce the lieutenant's instructions. The lieutenant ranted and raved, but there was little he could do to get the stubborn gringos to their feet. The gamble paid off. Within just a few minutes, a vehicle carrying Bobby's Colombian comrades came speeding up the jungle trail. They had several bags full of cash. It only amounted to $40,000, far less than the lieutenant's initial demand. But in the end, he took the money and left. $40,000 was better than no money at all and a bunch of dead smugglers to dispose of. Because of the delay, the plane was forced to stay grounded for another night as they couldn't possibly meet their offloading window for that evening in Miami. This led to a whole new round of problems. In Colombia in the 1970s, everyone wanted their cut. The longer the plane sat on the airfield, the more people would show up and take their own portion of the load. The lieutenant, irate at having been cheated out of more loot, informed both the Navy and the police of the plane's location and cargo. Bobby was forced to hide for half the night in a broom closet in a hotel, while the pilots hid in the woods as the police searched for them. In the middle of the night, Sailors from a nearby naval ship arrived at the airfield and took charge of the plane, offloading even more of the bales of marijuana. Another $35,000, plus several hundred pounds of product, was required to get them to leave. 
The pilots were finally able to take off only moments before the police arrived in a small plane, intending to confiscate even more of the load. Bobby left that morning too, taking a commercial flight back to Miami. Even though he'd agreed to remain as a hostage, his close call with the police and army convinced him he needed to get back home to safety. In the end, the plane arrived without a hitch in Miami and was offloaded successfully. Despite losing several hundred pounds of their 5,000-pound shipment to extortion, their sales more than made up for it. They were finally solvent. They could pay off the outstanding debts both to their customers stateside as well as Chino's father back in Colombia, who'd so generously loaned Bobby $5,000. The partnership was now really coming into its own. At that point in late 1977, it must have seemed like the future was golden. Still, they'd already decided that they couldn't keep this up forever. Once all three partners, Bobby, Robbie, and Big Gene, had pulled in a million dollars each, they vowed to get out of the business and go back to their legitimate companies. Unfortunately, that would prove easier said than done. Coming up, we'll see how the men who would become known as the Black Tuna Gang sowed the seeds of their own destruction by making one partnership too many. Now, back to the story. Despite all the drama in Colombia in 1977, Bobby, Robbie, and Big Gene were now becoming well-established smugglers, doing increasingly steady business throughout Florida and beyond. It was around this time that they set up shop in the Fontainebleau Hotel, a perfect spot to impress potential customers. The gang rented out one of the hotel's presidential suites to wine and dine their guests. Their suite was two floors with walls of polished wood paneling, plush carpets, and a winding staircase. It contained a grand piano and a pool table, a huge oak conference table, and a view of the beach and ocean. Though Bobby would later claim that after expenses, he'd only personally taken in twenty-five dollars or $30,000 by this point in time, he was already living in an opulent million-dollar home along the Intracoastal Waterway in Miami Beach. From there, he had easy access along Collins Avenue to the Fontainebleau. Back in Colombia, Bobby's reputation was now more stellar than ever. The original plan for their second shipment called for him to stay behind again as a hostage. But as he had needed to flee from the police, Bobby went back to Miami shortly after the plane departed. When he and Robbie still paid for the load on time as expected, any lingering doubts the Colombians might have had about their loyalty and trustworthiness were swept away. Within two weeks, both Bobby and Robbie were back in Colombia to talk about the next shipment. Gene stayed behind to run things in the Fontainebleau. With renewed faith in their abilities, the gang's suppliers wanted to start shipping larger loads. Planes traveled quickly, but they were expensive and had limited cargo space. Instead, the Colombians wanted to start shipping boatloads of Santa Marta gold, 30,000 pounds at a time. Bobby and Robbie had a friend and business associate named Mark Phillips, 
whose family owned a local yacht company in Miami. Mark could supply them with yachts to carry the Colombian weed. These yachts were sleek boats for wealthy sport fishermen, capable of carrying up to 20,000 pounds of marijuana. Thus, a 30,000-pound load could easily be covered by two yachts. The Colombians would send the shipment northward on a large fishing trawler. Bobby's yachts would meet them at a prearranged location near the Bahamas to transfer the cargo. Then the yachts would sail into Miami and offload separately at two different locations. These so-called stash houses were large homes on the waterfront with deep water anchorages where a yacht could easily be moored. The gang partnered with several local real estate agents to rent empty houses for offloading their product. Trucks disguised as delivery and home repair vehicles would then arrive to be loaded up for shipment to the customers. Bobby and his partners attempted to cover all their possible bases. They came up with code words and phrases to use over the phone in order to quickly arrange shipments. For instance, a phone call to the auto auction from Columbia asking for 30 tires to be delivered in three weeks' time meant that another 30,000-pound shipment was on its way and would arrive in three weeks. In addition, the painted water lines of the yachts were raised so that when they were loaded down with 15 or 16,000 pounds of marijuana, they wouldn't look low in the water. The yachts were also moored on a regular basis at the stash houses so that their appearance there later, when filled with bales of pot, wouldn't seem unusual. They also used the yachts for their actual purpose, sport fishing. Since sport fishing would be their excuse for traveling to the Bahamas to rendezvous with the Colombian trawler, using the boats regularly for real sport fishing would keep anyone from becoming suspicious. It was actually Bobby and his partner's proclivity for sport fishing that ultimately earned them the Black Tuna Gang moniker. During the weeks between smuggling runs, the gang would enter fishing tournaments with their yachts. After a particularly successful tournament, they all bought matching medallions emblazoned with a jumping fish to commemorate their victory. Government sources have maintained that the gang used the phrase Black Tuna as a code during their smuggling activities. Bobby has denied this, insisting that the DEA investigators invented the idea. He believes they saw a picture of Bobby and Robbie with one of their bluefin tuna catches from a tournament and mistook the large bluefin for the much smaller blackfin tuna. He says they then assumed the medallions were related and were used by the gang as symbols for members to recognize one another. Bobby would later write, the government's contention that we used black tuna medallions and radio codes as recognition signs is simply ridiculous. Whatever the real truth behind the matter is, the Black Tuna Gang was in full operation by late 1977, and they were ready to run their first boatload of marijuana up to Miami. Bobby met again with his Colombian suppliers and inspected the 70-foot trawler that would be bringing their 15 tons of marijuana. They agreed to offload in an area of the ocean off of Great Abaco Island in the Bahamas. A few days before the appointed time, the yachts and crews made their way out of the Bahamas to do some legitimate sport fishing and await the signal to make a final night run to the rendezvous location. 
Big Gene supplied the crews from his biker club, dressing them in matching outfits to make them look like a sport fishing team. While the boats were on their way to the Bahamas, Bobby received a call at his office at the auto auction. Someone in Colombia was in need of two or three Ford trucks for a farm near Santa Marta. Bobby hung up the phone knowing the message meant that the trawler would be at the rendezvous point in two or three days. Bobby, who could pilot small planes himself, flew out to meet the trawler by air two days later. He flew under the guise of fish spotting for his yachts. Finding the trawler where he expected it to be, they radioed and told him they'd be ready to fish at midnight. He then met up with the two yacht crews in the Bahamas and briefed them on the situation. They would rendezvous at the appointed time, load 15,000 pounds each, and then sail back to their stash houses in Miami, arriving around 5 p.m. when traffic would be thick and they could easily blend in with the other returning boats. Bobby spent the night on Chubkey in the Bahamas, intending to fly out the following day to check on the loaded yachts as they made their way to Miami. Everything seemed to be perfectly on track and Bobby went to bed that night with a clear head. But when he awoke at dawn the next morning, he got a huge shock. One of his yachts, called the Miss Dorothy, was sitting in dock on Chub Key. That was most definitely not where it was supposed to be. He could see that it had been loaded during the night as planned. It was so full, it was listing at the bow, sinking down below the raised waterline. There was damage to the front of the boat. Upon close inspection, Bobby could actually see into the cargo hold and the bales of marijuana stacked there. Clearly, the yacht had bumped and ground heavily against the trawler during the transfer, damaging the railing and upper deck. The captain had stopped at Chubkey to refuel because, with the excess weight, he was burning through fuel faster than expected. Why the boat was so overloaded was anybody's guess. Bobby would eventually find out it was because the boat's captain had turned greedy. They'd agreed to pay the two captains a per pound fee. So, loading first, the captain of the Miss Dorothy stuffed his boat to the gills, taking on far more than half the load and more than the yacht could easily handle. The second yacht had taken the remaining 8,000 or so pounds and was already well on its way to Miami. Certain that an experienced eye would be able to pick out the Miss Dorothy for a ganja boat, Bobby went into full panic mode. The dockyards weren't open yet, but he dished out $1,000 to bribe the dockmaster to open his fueling services early. While the boat was fueled, Bobby oversaw a hasty patching job of the damage to the bow, involving some plywood and duct tape. Within 20 minutes, the yacht was on its way again. In the end, they managed to pull off the shipment with only one more hitch. At the last minute, they had to abandon one of their stash houses. They told the realtor they were renting the house to use it for a movie. Starstruck, she'd shown up at the house hoping to catch a glimpse of a movie star. With her there, they couldn't very well dock a boat full of marijuana. At the last minute, they were able to find a different house and the marijuana was safely offloaded and sent on its way out of Florida. Thanks to a nearly 30,000 pound load, the Black Tuna gang made a fortune off their first big boat job. 
Each partner made the million dollars they'd set out from the beginning to make. They decided it was time to ease their way out of the business, using future runs to prop up their legitimate business ventures. That way, when they finally left it behind for good, they could continue to support themselves and their families on the straight and narrow. Their suppliers in Colombia also had legitimate businesses themselves, including cotton, coffee, and lumber. The Black Tunas began discussions with them on transitioning from smuggling drugs to importing legal goods and services into the United States. It was around this time that their associate in the yacht business, Mark Phillips, approached Bobby and Robbie about getting into the smuggling business himself. He asked for the Black Tunas to help him with his first run, to get him started in the business. Bobby and Robbie were considering turning Mark down until he mentioned that he had an old friend named George Purvis in North Carolina, whom he intended to partner with. Purvis's family owned a number of Ford dealerships. If Bobby and Robbie could help them get started in smuggling, Purvis could ensure a regular supply of used vehicles to the auto auction. This was just what Bobby and Robbie needed to hear. They were already looking for ways to get their legitimate businesses in the black so they could transition into an honest living. They viewed this opportunity as a way to achieve that goal. Bobby would later write, we should have known better. Mark was one of those nice guys who was not very good at anything but being a good guy. Unfortunately for Bobby and Robbie, good guys don't usually make good drug smugglers especially when the FBI comes knocking at their door. For more information on Robert Platshorn, amongst the many sources we used, we found his autobiography, Black Tuna Diaries, extremely helpful to our research. Thanks again for listening to Kingpins. Next week, we'll explore how the Black Tuna Gang's involvement with Mark Phillips and George Purvis led to their undoing. And we'll see how the government's heavy-handed tactics against pot smugglers, like the Black Tuna Gang, ultimately opened the door for the far more organized and violent drug cartels of the 1980s. You can find more episodes of Kingpins, as well as all of ParCast's other shows on Spotify and anywhere you listen to podcasts. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Kingpins was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Andy Waits, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Liebeskind. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Kingpins is written by Scott Christmas and stars Kate Leonard and Howell Hargett.